Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. He koonai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora. Ko William Rea ho. Welcome to Black Sheep. This is the second in our two-part series on the Bassett Road machine gun murders. Before we get back into the story, let's do a quick recap. So he went in and, and, um, and what, he, what he found in the front bedroom horrified him. On December 7th, 1963, the bodies of Kevin Spate and George Walker were found at number 115 Bassett Road in Remuera. And it looked like both of them had been shot. The two had been running an illegal beer house and police were pretty sure the murders had something to do with the dispute with another beer house in Anglesey Street, Ponsonby. Two witnesses said a man called John Gillies had claimed responsibility for the murders and they'd confirmed he was in possession of a rising submachine gun, the same weapon used in the murders. And my mate said, ah, oh, they have us mugged, so we gave them a burst. Gillies had claimed he needed the gun to defend himself against Barry Shaw. Barry Machine Gun Shaw, or Barry the Bruiser Shaw. Shaw was an enforcer at Anglesey Street, and the two of them had gotten into a fight over his girlfriend, a 21-year-old sex worker called Lola. Gillies got really dealt to, and he vowed that he would take his revenge on, on Barry. But there were still a couple of mysteries. First, if the gun was meant for Barry Shaw, why was he still alive and two other men were dead? Second, who was the mysterious man Gillies claimed came with him to Bassett Road on the night of the shootings? They didn't know it yet, but the police had the answer to these two questions right in front of their noses. In their raid of the Anglesey Street Beer House and the examination of Bassett Road, officers had found a number of telegrams, letters and other documents. And as they dug through those papers, they found a note. Dearest Kevin, I'm very sorry for what has happened between you and I, but Jerry came up and sprung all your bags. He couldn't get over it. However, we're the only ones that know about it. He's forgotten what has happened. But I'll never forget you, Kevin. I wish there was some way I could just be with you for a few minutes. I miss you. Detectives realised there was only one person who could have written this note. Mary Rapera, the teenage girlfriend of Jerry Wilby, leader of the Anglesey Street Beer House. On December 29th, they brought her into the station for questioning. They showed Mary her love note to Kevin Spate, and she immediately burst into tears. Finally, detectives heard the real story of the Bassett Road murders. It turned out this wasn't some kind of gangland turf war after all. As Scott Bainbridge explains, it was a murder over the affections of a 17-year-old girl. With Jerry, you know, he was he was flush with the money and um, and I, I guess he was a little bit dangerous, which, which is what excited her, but, you know, being with a 62-year-old, 
man, you know, would have had its disadvantages. Um, so when when the Anglesey Street Beer House opened up um, in the November of uh, 1963, there was a great deal of um, preparation that, you know, that needed to happen. And Mary was was tasked with, she was given a car, she was given Jerry's car, and she was tasked with going, you know, to the hotels to pick up the grog. One of the first visitors to the Anglesey Street Beer House was Kevin Spate. Now, Kevin Spate knew um, Jerry Wilby, and he probably would have known Ron Jorgensen through their times at sea. By the way, lots of the guys in the story spent time working on ships. Heading off for a few months at sea was a good way to let the heat die down between crimes. Anyway, when Wilby opened his beer house in November 1963, Spate helped out by going with Mary to collect the alcohol. Over that time, feelings changed, or, or feelings developed rather, and it was, you know, it was learnt later that they were having a relationship of sorts. At the same time he was sleeping with Mary, Kevin Spate decided to start his own beer house in direct competition with Jerry Wilby. He actually saw where they were going wrong. So, towards the end of the night, when the hosts and everybody else were, you know, were drunk people were just helping themselves and he had this idea that well they're being ripped off he wanted to open up a beer house where he could be in control spate hired george knucklehead walker to be his muscle man and rented 115 bassett road as the venue for his new beer house the place was a hit but spate didn't have long to enjoy his success within a week Jerry Wilby started hearing whispers that Mary was spending an awful lot of time at Bassett Road. And once this word got back to Jerry Wilby, he obviously was was pretty jealous and dispatched um, one of the guys to go and collect it from Bassett Road and drag it forcibly back. Um, but, you know, there were, there were the occasions where, you know, she was able to sneak out and go back to Bassett Road. There was, you know, just severe jealousy on his part. You know, Jerry was was paying all her bills and, um, you know, giving her money, um, whereas Kevin Spate, he was 26 years old, so obviously a lot younger, very sort of smart, smooth-looking guy, um, which would have held her attraction. Um, But certainly she was torn between, you know, her loyalty to Jerry and, you know, her new feelings towards Spate. And when she was pulled away by uh, Wilby's guys um, in the couple of days before the murders, that was at that stage that um, Spate was, you know, started sending the telegrams around. Remember, these were the other important documents police had found, a series of threatening messages from Spate to Anglesey Street, including one where he threatened to chuck a hand grenade through Jerry Wilby's bedroom window. He did go round to Anglesey Street on the afternoon before the murders to try and um, get her to go with him, but, you know, he was asked to leave by Jorgensen. So, yeah, so um, there was a lot of ill feeling in the in the hours leading up to the murders. December 4th. Jerry Wilby was sitting around at Anglesey Street, fuming at Kevin Spate. And right at this point, John Gillies showed up. He had his submachine gun hidden in Lola's briefcase, and he was looking to get even with Barry Shaw after their fight the previous night. Barry was lucky that um, he decided not to go to the beer house that night. He went to the movies with another girlfriend, so he wasn't there at all. Gillies had missed his chance for revenge. Instead, he started drinking and chatting with Jorgensen and Wilby. 
Both Lola and Mary were in the room watching this conversation play out. There was a little bit of talk going on about the fact that Kevin Spade had been and tried to get Mary to go with him. Um, there was a lot of talk about, you know, that they should do something about him. And when talk started to get a little bit more serious, both the girls left the room and or asked to leave, but they could kind of hear snippets of what of the conversation going on uh, in the lounge. And what Mary and Lola heard spelled out the rest of the story of the Bassett Road murders. Somebody produced a, a marijuana joint and they started smoking and Gillies produced a um, the submachine gun that he had intended on um, dealing to Barry with, but Barry never turned up that night. And Jerry Wilby allegedly said that, well, you know, I want you to go and um, deal to Kevin Spate. Now, much later, there was a lot of argument about what he meant by deal to him, whether it was to go and scare him or whether to beat him up with it or whether to shoot him, but um, that's never you know, been, been determined. The last thing that night at Anglesey Street was that Gillies had agreed to go and deal to Kevin Spate and Jorgensen was going to go along for the ride. Police finally had the identity of the mysterious second figure who Gillies said was in the room when the murder happened. Jerry Wilby's right-hand man, Ron Jorgensen. And it was mainly because Gillies was only new to Auckland and had no idea where Bassett Road was. Jorgensen you know, had been in Auckland for a wee while and knew his way around, so it might have been that he offered to drive Gillies to Bassett Road. At this point, Mary stopped her story. But years later, long after the Bassett Road investigation had finished, she told police another chapter. There was a period of about three or four days elapsed before the, the, the bodies were discovered. A day or two before the bodies were discovered, Jerry allegedly had a fight with, with Mary and said, well, you come with me and I'll show you what uh, what's happened to your lover type thing. And so they allegedly drove around to to Bassett Road and, and Mary had a spare key anyway. And she went in and saw the bodies and, and just and flipped out. She didn't know what to do. Instinctively, she pulled sheets out of the cupboard and draped them over the bodies. Um, and she ran out of the house. She wouldn't get back into the car with Wilby and she allegedly ran down Bassett Road and, you know, screaming and crying with, with um, him driving beside her, telling, you know, telling her to get in, otherwise she'd be next. There's something else which came out years after the investigation. It's a story Scott Bainbridge heard while researching his book. Scott says there might have been a fifth man in the room when George Walker and Kevin Spate were killed. I was approached by one elderly guy, his name's Puggy. Puggy was part of the Sunbeams, which was a, a boys' musical group. They would go to talent competitions, but they were also favourites of, of a lot of the, the beer houses. They'd come and provide ent- musical entertainment. 
Now, one of the, the younger guys, Tim, he had the habit of, you know, if there were remnants of beer in people's glasses, he'd go and drink it, and then he'd go to sleep somewhere, and he had the habit of going to sleep in people's wardrobes. These boys, the Sunbeams, were apparently at, at Bassett Road that night, and when they left, they forgot to take Tim, who, who says that he was asleep in the, in the wardrobe. And the next day when the boys got together, he said, look, somebody was murdered, you know, last night. He could distinctly remember hearing Ron Jorgensen's voice. Um, they'd just shot Kevin Spate, and George Walker was sort of kneeling on the floor, um, you know, begging for his life. And, and um, this, this boy allegedly heard Jorgensen say, you know, I'm sorry, George, but, you know, we've got to do this because you've got a big mouth. And, and it was then that George was shot. Now, the boys kind of shrugged it off because they thought he was just sort of telling a tall story. But when it came out that when the news, when the bodies were discovered, in the, they believed him and, um, and he didn't really know what to do. But they all sort of agreed that, you know, perhaps it's best not to say anything. That story may or may not be true. It's a second-hand account. We just don't know. In any case, police didn't know anything about this back in 1963. But they did have Mary overhearing the conversation where Jorgensen, Gillies and Wilby agreed that Gillies should deal with Kevin Spate. Lola corroborated that story. She'd heard the same snippets of that late-night conversation. Detectives also got some extra evidence, telephone records suggesting Ron Jorgensen phoned the toll service asking for directions to Bassett Road. That's what people used to do in the days before Google Maps. On New Year's Eve... Police went to the hotel where John Gillies was staying. But when he opened the door, they saw his face was covered in bruises and cuts. What the hell happened to you? Yeah, nothing. Came off second best in a fight last night. John Frederick Gillies, I'm arresting you for the murder of Kevin James Spate. Gillies said nothing. His face showed no surprise. He was dragged off to the police station. Next, police went to Anglesey Street and asked Ron Jorgensen to come to the station for questioning. They mentioned John Gillies had a black eye and Jorgensen confessed the two had been in a fight. Apparently tensions had been growing ever since the night of the murders. Jorgensen held up his fists, which were swollen and red. That's what I did to Gillies last night. I don't like mugs trying to get one over on me. The detectives showed Jorgensen a suitcase the one Lola had lent John Gillies to hide the gun on the night of the murders. Never seen it before. Next, detective showed him the telephone records. Ron, have you ever phoned tolls to tell them you wanted to know where Bassett Road was? No, I've never in my f***ing life rung tolls to find out where Bassett Road is. What do you think happened that night in Bassett Road? I'm sick of the whole f***ing business. I'm off. Time's up, Ron. You're under arrest for the murder of Kevin James Spate. So both Jorgensen and Gillies were in custody, and now they were headed for trial. The police figured they had a strong case against John Gillies. Multiple witnesses had seen him with the murder weapon and had heard him boasting about the killings. The case against Ron Jorgensen was more difficult. It relied very heavily on the testimony of Lola and Mary. And Jorgensen knew it. 
he certainly sent word out via his um, muscle men, um, Barry Shaw and Bert Clapham, um, to go and intimidate witnesses. Um, that had been, you know, overheard by the prison guards that, you know, he was directing orders to stop, you know, Mary and Lola to stop, um, get, you know, to, to not to give evidence. These threats weren't just targeted at Mary and Lola. Another witness had shots fired outside his house. The lead detective in the case went to sleep with a gun under his pillow. And there was a rumour going around that um, that the mobsters were going to bust both Jorgensen and Gillies out of the court. And uh, certainly there was heavy security, which was, you know, unheard of at the time. Oh, you know, there was no such court case that required that much, you know, police presence there. I should say, these accusations of witness tampering and threats were hotly disputed by Ron Jorgensen's lawyer, Peter Williams. Peter Williams went on to become one of New Zealand's most famous defence lawyers and also became a lifelong friend of Ron Jorgensen. There's a whole chapter about him in Peter Williams' autobiography. Here's an extract read by him before his death in 2015. The names of virtually all of the prosecution witnesses were suppressed at the preliminary hearing on the grounds that they would be interfered with by the defence if their names were revealed. The courtroom was heavily guarded and the whole atmosphere deliberately created by the prosecution, exacerbated the tidal wave of prejudice against the defence. Peter Williams says the intimidation of witnesses was actually happening on the other side of the case. A material witness for the Crown testified that before he made his statement, he had been taken out to the Waitakere by four detectives who gave him a savage beating. He said in his evidence that he was assured by a police lawyer that he would not be beaten up again if he cooperated. And as a result, he made his so-called voluntary statement. The police rejected that accusation, and Scott Bainbridge thinks it's unlikely to be true. Talking to those guys that were involved in the criminal side of things, you know, they say that you know, it never happened. Um, Barry Shaw said that he did have a few fights with, with the police, fist fights, but... Um, you know, he said that he admitted that they were usually initiated by him. In the end, it took just three hours for the jury to convict Jorgensen and Gillies for murder. They were both given life sentences. As for Jerry Wilby, the guy who's actually alleged to have ordered the killing, he was never charged with any crime related to the Bassett Road murders. There just wasn't enough evidence against him. Detectives might have been hoping that Jorgensen and Gillies would turn on him during the trial. If so, they must have been disappointed. But the story isn't over yet. The most interesting part of the Bassett Road saga is what happens after Gillies and Jorgensen are convicted. Ron Jorgensen launched a massive campaign for his release with the help of his lawyer and friend, Peter Williams. The free Jorgie campaign, you know, that that's um, well-known by quite a few people. Yeah, he would use whatever p platform he could to try and, um, you know, get his, his case reheard, you know, because of the fact that, you know, he wasn't the trigger man and he was there and he didn't know that Gillies was actually going to fire the gun and kill the men. So, um, you know, he, over the years he's garnered a great deal of support from a great number of people. While he was in prison, he, he learnt to Rio and he translated Torrio books into Braille. He was a prolific painter, and a painting by Ron Jorgensen was something to be had. Um, so, you know, he garnered a lot of support. 
possibly the most controversial part of the Free Georgie campaign was a couple of letters John Gillies wrote to the Sunday News about a year after the murders. The police and the justice minister have got this whole thing all wrong. Jorgensen didn't shoot these two men at Bassett Road. Now, I should know, because I was the one there. I shot Spaten Walker. Don't get me wrong. I didn't go to Bassett Road alone. I had a girl with me. She's the person who should have been standing alongside me in the dock at the trial, not Jorgensen. Gillies doesn't actually name the girl he says participated in the Bassett Road murders, but it's pretty heavily implied to be Lola. These allegations were treated seriously by police at the time, but Scott Bainbridge thinks it's very unlikely Gillies was telling the truth. Gillies was under intense pressure in jail. Um, Jorgensen, he had great mana and he had, he, had, um, he was a very charismatic person himself. So he had a great deal of support amongst the other prisoners. And, um, you know, Gillies by now was a sworn enemy. They absolutely hated each other. So Gillies was beaten up and intimidated and was forced to, to write this you know, letter of confession, which was you know, leaked to the Sunday News. Despite all this, the Free Georgie campaign failed. He got out on parole a few times, but was always returned to prison after breaching his conditions. His final release was in 1983, when he was paroled to his dad's house in Kaikoura. He didn't like his father. He never got on with him. There was no relationship there, but he was paroled to his house. And so Jorgensen sort of... um, you know, had a, a small caravan at the back of his of his father's house, and the parole conditions were extremely stringent, and that he couldn't get out of of Kaikoura, so he was confined to the township. Jorgensen did manage to get some leniency. He was able to travel to Christchurch to help the famous businessman Bob Jones run for Parliament. He struck up a relationship with a woman down there, but by all accounts, he was pretty miserable. One night in December 1983, um, Jorgensen was seen standing with another gentleman on a cliff overlooking the Kaikoura coast and a a vehicle's there. The next morning, uh, the the car is seen in rocks off that cliff and the car was all concertinaed, so, you know, it had gone headfirst into rocks. The simplest explanation is that Ron Jorgensen committed suicide. But there are problems with that theory. There was nobody inside the car. And even if there was somebody inside as it concertinaed, there's no way they could have got the door open. So it, it lends sort of credence to the fact that there was nobody in the car in the first place. Um, there's certainly no tyre marks to, to indicate that it had driven off. So if Ron Jorgensen didn't die in a car crash, what happened to him? In the days after his disappearance, Christchurch police busted a, a huge drug and burglary ring operating between Christchurch and Kaikoura. So there was some thought there that Jorgensen had tipped, knew about it or was involved somehow and tipped the police off and, and as a, um, a reward or whatever, um, you know, he was given a new life and identity in Australia. Even if the police weren't involved, lots of people believe Jorgensen ended up in Australia. Maybe he faked his own death to throw the cops off his tail. Some years after uh, his disappearance, um, a number of people saw a man they believed to be Ron Jorgensen in Perth. One of them was an old school friend. One of them was a a prison guard who knew him from prison. Not so long ago, a gentleman told me that he had gone to school with Jorgensen and, and had caught up with him. In fact, he'd given him a job painting houses in Kaikoura. 
prior to his disappearance, and he saw him at the um, at a casino over in Australia. And when they locked eyes, Jorgensen ran off. But many of the people who knew Ron Jorgensen the best are certain he's dead. People like Barry Shaw and Pooch Quintal, who knew Jorgensen, they were of the belief that Jorgensen was actually murdered the night he disappeared and that um, he was taken out to this uh, on a boat with the ruse that he was that he was going to be taken to another boat to go to Australia, but he was shot on the back of the head and, and his body put in a cray pot and dumped off the off the boat off the Kaikoura coast. Peter Williams didn't believe any of these conspiracy theories. He always believed Jorgensen's death was a simple suicide. They really didn't give Ron a chance to rehabilitate, to resume any kind of normal life. He had to live in Kaikoura with his elderly father, who was in his 80s and almost senile, and Ron was not allowed to work. Some say he feigned his own death and is still alive, living incognito in Australia. But the fact that he has never communicated with me is clear evidence that he is dead. By the way, if you're interested in hearing more about this, Scott Bainbridge was involved in a TV documentary series called The Missing, which has an episode all about Ron Jorgensen's disappearance and the theories around it. Jerry Wilby also has a mysterious end to his story. That's absolutely bizarre, that that particular case, because um, it occurred in that period where... Jorgensen had disappeared himself. Jerry Wilby was was now in his eighties. He was living elsewhere, but he he came up to Auckland to visit his or stay with his ex-wife. Wilby's ex-wife said he made plans to meet her one day, but never turned up. Eventually, his body was found, hanging by one leg from a wharf in downtown Auckland. The official explanation was that you know this old guy was walking along the wharf and he must have tripped over a rope that was on the wharf and got his foot entangled and you know he didn't have the strength to free himself and as the as the tide rose up he drowned but scott bainbridge spoke to people who knew jerry Wilby, and they had another explanation for his death jerry owed a lot of money to um, Charlie White, who was a friend of, of George Walker, who was one of the victims of the Bassett Road murders. And some of the guys like Barry Shaw even think that, you know, he was m- deliberately murdered and a- as a punishment for what happened at Bassett Road, you know, 20-odd years earlier. John Gillies spent 21 years in prison for his part in the Bassett Road murders. He actually staged a dramatic prison break the year after his conviction, alongside the serial prison escapee George Wilder. They burst into a house and took an elderly woman hostage, but were eventually recaptured by police. He was released on parole in 1985, actually around the same time Ron Jorgensen vanished. There were some early theories that Gillies might have been responsible for Jorgensen's disappearance, but Scott Bainbridge says the parole conditions were so strict there's no real chance Gillies could have snuck down to Kaikoura without raising the alarm. Of all the characters linked to the Bassett Road murders, Gillies probably had the most conventional end. He was released in the mid-90s to live the rest of his life in Lower Hutt under an assumed name. Scott Bainbridge actually tried to interview him while he was researching his book, but... Gillies just swore at him and kept walking. He died in July 2019. 
very special thanks to Scott Bainbridge. His book is New Zealand's Gangster Killings, The Bassett Road Machine Gun Murders. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, and if you want to help more people find out about Black Sheep, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Also, don't forget to check out RNZ's other great podcasts. If you're looking for a political fix, try Caucus. It comes out every Thursday and gives some really good analysis on the upcoming election. Black Sheep is written and presented by me, William Ray. Our executive producer is Tim Watkin and our sound engineer is Phil Benge. Our voice actors are Tianiwa Hurihanganui, Duncan Smith, Chris Reed, and Colin Peacock. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.